Welcome to The Long Box of Darkness, a podcast exploring horror in comic book form. I'm Misty Graves. And I'm Herman Lowe. Join us for a look inside The Long Box of Darkness. Welcome back, Constant Listeners, to another episode of The Long Box of Darkness. Today we're going to be discussing two stories. Once again, the same as we did in the previous Elvira episode. Uh, Two classics, well, the first one being classic at least. And um, we picked them because of a theme that we have uh, this week and that we've discussed over the last month. The theme of the apocalypse. That's it, the impending doom of the world that hopefully will not happen in real life, but that definitely happens in these two tales. And once again, I'm joined by my pod partner, Misty. Misty, how's it going? It's going great. Actually not. It's terrible. Wait a second. When you say apocalypse, I think we could get a little more specific and say perhaps uh, plagues. Mm, a plague, a plague apocalypse. Centered apocalypse, yeah. That's right. I mean, there's a couple of ways that the human race could go out, and this, this seems like the most likely one. Although we're not going to be all maudlin and depressed about it, we're just going to focus on the fiction of the situation. But I think there's lots that folks would be able to identify with in these two stories. So maybe they can use that to alleviate some fears yeah. or... Um, at least see the humor in what we're going to be discussing too because there's a lot to break down here I'm sure you'd agree Misty oh yeah there's Edgar Allan Poe who was a master of writing and his work and then we also have Jenny Finn a story about sea monster plague (laughs) that's right (laughs) And the Jenny Finn portion we'll actually only talk about in part two of the show. That's right, listeners. We're doing a two-parter this time around. The first part will be all about um, The Mask of the Red Death by Edgar Allan Poe as adapted by Richard Corbin. While the second part, Jenny Finn, we will discuss uh, on an episode that will drop next week. Uh, That's already been recorded, so look out for that. And I should say, um, you know, this is something that um, you and I feel very close to this material, not just because it reflects current events, but because we're big Poe fans. And the second story is decidedly Lovecraftian. So I'm a big fan of H.P. Lovecraft. I don't know how you feel about the father of modern horror. Are you a fan Uh, of H.P.? H.P. Lovecraft. (laughs) How dare you? I'm just kidding. (laughs) You know, um, I know this is what I know about H.P. Lovecraft, the Kraken, um, foreboding horror that is indescribable, uh, uh, not definable, uh, larger than life, kind of interdimensional, that type mm. of fear. Exactly. That's the best way to describe it, like cosmic horror, the horror of the ineffable or the, the horror of the... Uh, unknowable other which you know is in itself very horrifying 
you know, the unknown. And, uh, you know, us as minuscule little minute creatures that, that are going to be squashed by these gigantic god things, most often rising from the sea. <laughs> I'm looking at you, Cthulhu. But uh, <laughs> what I just realized it is so scary Damn, not is. knowing all of the things that you should be scared of. That is the scariest thing. <laughs> it's it's exactly. like you never really you you sh there's things that you should be scared of that you don't even know you should be scared of and that's the scariest thing ever. Yeah, probably. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean that's why mm -hmm. his stories are so fear inducing. But um, you know, pose a different kind of cat, if I can say that, putting a bit of a black cat reference in there. Poe, you know, his fear comes more from the everyday, but also what would you do if you would be if you were confronted by a situation that is so untenable, you know, but it's completely plausible, it's completely possible. Um, especially in his stories concerning murder, um, and his stories uh, you know, concerning torture and a little bit of, um, you know, uh, murder mysteries, those stories are completely possible. You know, you have people who are sick and, and would actually perpetrate those events. But today, the story we're talking about, of course, is completely different, although still plausible. Right, Misty? Yeah, it's definitely still plausible. I could see this happening, actually. Like... Yeah, well, um, we're kind of... Um, observing it happening right now. <laughs> oh yeah, extent. actually it is. It is happening. It is currently happening. Yes. <laughs> so not to keep the listeners in too much suspense, the Edgar Allan Poe tale we'll talk about today is from a Dark Horse comic book, Spirits of the Dead, um, by Richard Corbin, one of my absolute all-time favorite horror comic artists, and he's also writing this tale. He's adapted it, and. Um, we're going to be talking that one first, right, Misty? And then um, later on, we're going to be doing Jenny Finn, a, a story by Mike Mignola and Troy Nixie, also from Dark Horse, um, which collects four issues. Um, and then that was also put out in the early aughts by Dark Horse, um, both apocalyptic in terms of um, prevalent diseases. But before that, we're going to take a little break and play some um, suitably eerie intro music to our segment called... It came from the long box. It came from the long box. <laughs> All right, listeners, as I mentioned, Mask of the Red Death, uh, this story can be found in the collection, Spirits of the Dead. And uh, there was a hardcover that was put out in 2014 by Dark Horse, collecting these one-shot tales of Poe, adapted by Richard Corbin, the master, praise be his name. And then they also put out a soft cover in 2019, last year. Um, so that might be the cheaper option. I, I don't even think that hardcover's in print anymore. But um, great tales of um, Edgar Allan Poe that Corbin illustrated. He's obviously a fan. This one, though, The Mask of the Red Death, is by far my favorite in the entire collection. I don't know about you, Misty, but this, this one's a standout for me. Yeah, this one it struck a chord. Def it definitely struck a chord, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 
that's an understatement and um, mm -hmm. I think it's also because it's so colorful you know normally Corbin's stories are very dark uh, very muted blacks that he uses lots of shadows lots of cross hatching but this time around he's focusing on color because in the story color plays a big role in the horror color I would say the ebony clock and of course the the presence of this a virulent uh, disease which which harkens back to you know shades of the black death <laughs> but we'll get into that misty uh, you've opted to um, take this segment under your wing this section of the discussion you're a big poe fan possibly even more than i am um so take it away uh, with the mask of the red death all right so the mask of the red death um I I would like to start out, start out by asking you a question. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> Have you ever been to a themed party or like a masquerade ball? Oh yes. Or many, you have? Many you a have? time. Yeah. Well, I mean, Halloween parties here are usually themed and then sometimes when someone throws a birthday bash over here it's always the foreigners doing this always the expats living here they might say okay let's just do for the hell of it let's do do a, a masquerade party and but it's nothing formal of course it's just informal but everybody shows up with a mask and it's fun guessing who's who and that I've, I've been to one at least twice in my 20 years here in Taiwan but never one back home in South Africa what about you Misty I have been to a couple, um, and they were very fun, and the story is about a masquerade ball gone wrong, <laughs> essentially, <laughs> um, and so I just wanted to say a little bit about Edgar Allan Poe before we get started, mm. and the tone for who he is a little bit as a writer um also i was wondering if you want to tell me a little bit about like your personal history with poe as an author oh yeah sure well um i got into poe very late i'm ashamed to say i think i was already in no i was in high school uh, but we never had anything from him being offered as part of the, the teaching courses we had as part of our studies. I think the reason I got into him was my dad gifted me a book because he knew I was into Stephen King and into popular horror. So he gifted me a book, Great Tales of Terror and the Supernatural. And in it was two Poe tales, one the facts in the case of M. Valdemar and, of course, The Black Cat, the first one I read. And it blew my mind. Um, part of the reason is... Obviously, since I was used to reading modern horror, Poe sort of brought a kind of um, a literary feel to his horror, but it was still clearly meant mm -hmm. to disturb you, to appeal to, you know, the popular audience. So I felt like, oh, I'm highbrow now reading this kind of horror, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it As... is highbrow horror. He's Damn. He's a master. I will say that he's an incredibly eloquent writer, and that we'll leave it at that. <laughs> um, that is one of the things that made him so popular back in the day. It's like he was so erudite, but he was also dealing with stuff that the common 
person would love to read about, you know, fear, horror, uh, Grand Guignol, you know, that kind of thing, which is which was a big deal for people. That that was entertainment for them back then. And, you know, I think, I don't know about you, Missy, but I've owned so many Poe collections over the years and and I've lost most of them. But the one that I've now had for the longest time, you know, the reason I've lost them is because we've been moving around a lot. And um, But the one that I've had for the longest time is one that came out a couple of years ago that someone gifted me. It's called the Annotated Poe. And it's got lots of great annotations and pictures and, mm. and even some, some paintings by popular artist inspired by Poe's tales. <clears throat> so I've been loving that thing and I've, I've probably read it three times by now, uh, cover to cover. And, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm an unabashed Poe fan. I wasn't a fan of the movie with John Cusack um, very much. I just, I think Poe's the kind of guy you can't really do him justice because he had such a distinctive look. So barring uh, an animated Poe movie or... You know, because how do they get his weird-shaped head right? That's what I, I was thinking oh, about. I was like... Are we talking about the cover? <laughs> okay, that too. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm, I have to admit, Misty, I'm a fan. And um, I want to know your Poe origin, though. I mean, I'm very interested about this. Because the first uh, picture I saw of your bookshelf had this massive Poe tome. Um, and, you know, I knew then, you know, this, this lady, she's not scared to get a tennis elbow from reading Poe. She would <laughs> gladly make that sacrifice. <laughs> well, like, no uh, goths library would be complete without a giant, without all of Poe's works in one book, in a, you know, black binding with gold writing on it. Um and so it was just kind of a must-have. I think it. I think it's something Barnes and Noble put out when they put out these giant editions of classic writers. And I, I got the Poe one. Um, and uh, but be, before that, my history with Poe stories goes all the way back to childhood. I remember reading excerpts from his stories in my language arts classes at school. Mm. Um, and like around Halloween, we'd, we'd read the telltale heart. That was, uh, one that we went over and we would discuss the language he used and, in our language arts teacher would help us understand what he meant by certain stanzas, you know, just kind of really delve into his writing. Um, but he was always a figure in American culture He's inspired so many stories and so many popular forms of media have redone his stories. Like, there's so many adaptations yeah. of Poe stories, like hundreds of thousands of adaptations of Poe stories. Um, and of just this story, there's probably over 50 adaptations exactly. that have existed. and and. And just in comic books. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that, that's I mean... Counting, like, movies and television and, you know, all the different ways that Poe's inspired other things. But, yeah, that's just in comic books. There's there's a lot of different... There's... Um, we probably could do four episodes just doing different versions of this story that were published in different comic books over the years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you're, you're damn tootin'. <laughs> because... <laughs> 
You know, I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of That's it... great, you old hoot owl. <clears throat> yeah, you see, I've been getting my Americanisms uh, ready to impress you. <laughs> but I, I doubt Poe would, would, would have talked like this, though. <laughs> He, he, like you say, he's much more eloquent, but still, you know. Yeah, so he's I been. I think he was yeah. from Boston. Boston, so he yeah. He would talk like uh, Ben Affleck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I can do. Sorry, listeners. I won't be able to do an Affleck accent, but it's probably for the best. <laughs> Let me just. I have Poe facts. I want to double yeah. check that he's from Boston before saying, yep, he's from Boston. He was born. January 19th, 1809, in Boston, Massachusetts, and he died from mysterious circumstances, October 7th, 1849. Yeah, that's right. Um, that's that's part of his, uh, you know, legend, or part of the mythology surrounding Poe is his um, strange death, the bizarre circumstances that led up to uh, him being found and then dying in the hospital later on. But, you know, um, you would expect this kind of thing uh, from, you know, a person who had become famous writing horror stories mostly in that time. You know, um, I, I think there was an article published right after his death by one of his enemies that, that sort of portrayed him as a madman as well. Um, <laughs> Honestly, they did him a favor. I think yeah. I remember reading an article about how that article actually did Poe a favor by cementing him in the minds of his fans and, and his enemies as larger than life. Yeah. <laughs> no, I agree. I agree with you. And, you know, uh, one of the interesting tidbits I, I found as well when I was reading the annotated Poe just a couple of weeks ago was that Robert Louis Stevenson, you know, of Jekyll and Hyde's fame and Treasure Island, he was, uh, he came obviously much later, much uh, um, long after Poe, not not too much um, later, but he was a huge fan of Poe. And he wrote treatises and, and, and criticism of, of Poe's work but um, always admiring the guy. And, you know, he's very insightful when it comes to Poe. And he admits that that notoriety that he built up over the years, uh, being this strange little man <laughs> writing these horror stories, that sort of boosted his um, reputation in those circles and among people who loved them, especially in places like France and, you know, um, who like the kind of darker writers like Emile Zola and those kind of guys. You know, oh, yeah. he was Definitely. big there. Yeah. Yeah, actually, before he was well known for his stories, he was well loved as a snarky magazine critic. <laughs> yes. People yeah. liked him because he wrote snarky uh critiques of, of plays and and books and um I like in the modern day equivalent, he'd probably have a lot of followers on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> You know, from providing oh good critics, just good snarky criticism. He'd, yeah, he'd probably have a lot of followers. Yeah, um, and he wrote for many magazines. He acquired an editorial position at the Southern Literary Messenger magazine, where he became famous for his scathing book reviews and scorching critiques. And I would just love to read his most scathing book review. You know, like yeah. I really. I hope that exists out there. Listeners, if by any chance <laughs> you have access to Poe's most scathing book review or scorching critique, I would love to hear that. Send it to us yeah. because 
Please. It's hilarious. <laughs> we'll read it out loud on the show. There must be something out there. Yeah, you're right. There must be some links to some sites, to some archival material. Please let us know. We'll, we'll yeah. also do our research. But yeah, this is just an aside, right, from this discussion yeah. that we've suddenly just become Just an aside. Yeah. I mean, I looked, I Googled for about two minutes before I gave up. But if anybody wants to <laughs> do a deep dive to find his most scathing book review... Please, oh, uh, please do. I'll be eternally grateful. I'll give you a shout out you on know, the podcast. Yeah. Now that you mentioned Poe would make a hit on Twitter, I'm kind of thinking in my mind, someone should should create a Poe account and tweet as Edgar Allan Poe would have. Think about it like in the morning. Good morning, my little ravens. How are you today? <laughs> or, hey, uh, don't marry any 13-year-old girls. <laughs> Jeez. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I was going to mention that. That probably should be mentioned when you're talk when we're talking about this man. Uh, he he did. He married his first cousin, Virginia Clem, when she was 13 years old and he was 27. Oh, that is so... definitely not done these days. Well, well, it is still obviously done, but. Yeah, that is right. a little bit frowned upon nowadays. But, you know, like we're going to be talking later with H.P. Lovecraft, Misty, there's, you kind of gotta have to take these guys with a whole mountain of salt because back then things were different. I just cannot believe that it was this different, though, but that was accept acceptable practice. So I'm sad to say. But, you know, from what other things that I've read, Poe was a very um, moral, very virtuous kind of guy. He stood up for championed the rights of, of the poor whenever he could in his writing, and he vehemently criticized the politicians of the time and the you know the, the money lenders and so forth and um you know the rich and i think mask of the red death kind of reflects his disdain for that society the extravagance the you know of of, of upper class um you know society where they have these balls these lavish events so you know he was a good guy i mean in my mind except for the fact that obviously he had this weird liaison with his <laughs> cousin that turned into a marriage. Yeah, uh, he was always um, against the grain, I would say. He's yeah. a man who lived his way against the grain, and in no way is that an endorsement of child marriage to say that's some like, cool, rebellious thing to do, because it's really not cool. Don't marry children. Just announcing that that's my stance on that. Don't marry <laughs> children. Uh, Damn. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I'm going to take a hard draw a hard line in the sand there. <laughs> same here. Same here. Yeah. Um, but he he um, was a orphan whose stepdad wanted him to be a business gentleman, like his older brother. Yeah. But he wanted to be a writer, like Lord Byron. Yeah. And, you know, who doesn't want to be Lord Byron? Yeah, but unlike Lord Byron, he didn't have the financial, you know, backing of a title and of land and of property and of a family name to help him to live a life of luxury while pursuing these, you know, literary um, dreams. Uh, I feel really bad for Poe because he struggled with poverty, poverty throughout his entire life. And yeah, uh, it was so sad, but, I, but it looks like that kind of sort of informed a lot of his writing. Um, yeah. What would you say? Maybe that's good for us, bad for him, obviously. But it did. I bet that was why people liked him. He's probably a little bit of a voice of the underdog. Yeah. But what a voice. I mean, wow. He could 
outright any of the upper class writers of the time, I would say, you know, not that there were many, because when you choose writing as your profession back then, it was sort of like a given that you would be stuck in poverty. But, you know, um, (laughs) but you had a lot of these guys from England. I I think Poe took offense at the fact that they were reprinting English authors' work, you know, in the 1840s on cheap paper and that was sort of uh, competing with the American authors of the time because people back then just saw English authors as more, um, you know, if you read an English author, you would be, you know, obviously someone with, with more refined, you know, sensibilities and you would be someone of refined taste. And so Paul took umbrage at the fact that, you know, the publishing industry at the time was sort of promoting the British author's work, you know, um, instead of their more local, you know, writers. So, mm-hmm. you know, I agree with him because if you compare his writing to any of the, the, the British authors at the time, it, com- it it is on an equal footing. And, of course, in my mind, superior because of the subject matter. Or what would you say, Misty? I would say that it is hard for me as an American woman in 2020 to look back at uh, I do not have the expertise to even really compare Poe's writing to maybe. But you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and say Poe smokes those guys, fully <laughs> smokes them. Poe smokes a British editorial writer under the table any day. Like, I'll back I'm sure you on he, that. I'm sure yeah. I'm sure his reviews, his critiques, his articles, his stories were all more entertaining and more edgy and more in touch with what actual people were living through than, you know, what perhaps a British intellectual would know about what life is like in Boston, you know? Exactly. But um, you must acknowledge he had some kind of universal quality to his stories as well, as well. You know, it it could be read by anyone. I mean, uh, this sort of is supported by the fact that he was so popular in France um, at the time. You know, anybody gains some um, insight into the lives of Americans, but they also gain this universal kind of story, which is normally about fear or something we'd all uh, possibly experience. And that's sort of uh, that angle that made him popular, I think, as a writer, because there was this universal kind of um, aspect to his tales even today even though his writing now seems I'm not going to say dated but he's he's obviously writing in that flowery kind of prose it's beautiful it is beautiful yeah fucking beautiful pardon my language but like we use these we have these all these technologies now that like correct our spelling and they suggest words that we can use and Google will literally not if you start typing a word that Google doesn't know, it's like, oh, I don't know what this is. It's like, how do you not know what this word is? You're Google, you know? And But yeah. that'll happen to me. I'll be typing a word and Google will just <laughs> act like it doesn't know what I'm typing or it won't be able to spell check it for me. So I'll have to spell check it myself. <laughs> and that kind of stuff I feel like is limiting human speech and it's limiting our ability to describe our experience yeah, uh, being alive, <laughs> and I yes. think Poe does a really good job, and and a lot of perhaps maybe writers, other writers from this time and historically, they seem to have more words. They seem mm. to have a wider. I don't 
no, you know, people, writers these days are probably just as eloquent, but I can't even imagine a story like this being published in a newspaper these days or a magazine. No. It has it is the reading it is a kind of an advanced reading level. There's a lot of Yeah, you it's lots <laughs> No, 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 you're right there. Um, I completely agree. These guys were, well, they did reading for a living, basically. So they probably read volumes and volumes of, of li library shelves more than we would ever read or that um, yeah. even modern writers of today would. And um, so, you know, you know, yeah. you know, what it's reminding me of a little bit is like guitar solos or like when you solo on an instrument because you're like a <laughs> badass at it. You're like, I'm an expert at this. So like. Pose the Mask of the Red Death is him just like shredding on an electric guitar yeah. with all of his literary skills and is a wide range is, is incredible vocabulary. <laughs> yeah, I agree completely. No, no, he had a way with words that few have. I think um, you know, that's why he's one of my favorite writers, because he literally makes you smarter if you read him. He literally makes you feel smarter and um mm -hmm. he makes you want to research the stuff you don't know. And then once you've done that, you like the story way more and you want to read it again and you're a better person for it. That's just the way I feel. I mean, even though mm -hmm. there's some seriously depressing content, it's sort of, um, you know, if you're a horror fan, it, it kind of helps you, you know, deal with stuff. Um, but also it teaches you about the, you know, history, it teaches you about vocabulary, it teaches you, you know, concepts that the, those guys struggled with back then that um, it's f damn interesting to me. So that's yeah. one of the reasons. Same with Lovecraft, although Lovecraft is not uh, as good a writer as Poe. He was more like stream of consciousness, millions of adjectives, weird words. You know, he, him was. It's it's more about imagery with him, but with Poe, it's about imagery flowing seamlessly into the prose. So the yeah. mark, mark of a great writer. Yeah, he uses all of the tools in in the belt in the box. <laughs> <laughs> yep. All of the, the colors of crayons. All of the tools in the cask of Amontillado. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. I also like to mention uh, all of the, uh, some of the notable adaptations that this story has been, has been, what is the word? Presented as or has yeah, been found in? Mm. Yeah. Um, and just comics. These are all comics that I want to read. In the future. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> um, so we have in 19... Okay, first of all, in 1982, this is a fun fact, Troll Associates published The Mask of the Red Death as a children's book. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, it was published as a children's book in the early 80s. I would love to read that. Listeners, if you have that children's book... Send me a photo. I want to see that. Damn. <laughs> tell Whoa, me about a it. Children's book. How many kids? I mean, we talked about scary stories to tell in the dark last time. How many kids mm -hmm. have been scarred by these reckless editors over the years? <laughs> They're now horror fans like we are, Misty. Scarred for the better. <laughs> horror is for the whole family. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a, Disney, take note. Get into horror again. We need another, you know, <laughs> what is it? Um, the Black Cauldron. We need another th movie like that. <laughs> Oh my gosh, just Disney itself is horrific. It's horror. Just like yeah. the existence of Disney. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Good point. Oh, okay. 
1982, Lauren published The Mask of the Red Death in Vampirella, number 110. That's right. Um, in 1952, Marvel published The Face of Death in Adventures into the Weird World. Mm. Adventures in the Weird Worlds number four. Also in that same year, Tarleton published The Red Death in The Thing number two. In 61, Marvel published Masquerade Party in Strange Tales number 83. In 75, Warren published Shadow in Creepy number 70. And in that same year, Charlton <laughs> published The Plague in Haunted number 22. And those are all adaptations of this story that I want to read. And that is, there are no. That isn't by no means a complete list. There's so many more. Um, so just so you know, this is. There's so many more uh, adaptations of this story. If you want to, if you're not happy with this one, <laughs> <I guess. laughs> go and ahead and find okay. yourself pretty more. <laughs> I haven't read those other adaptations much. I read some, you know, uh, some. I've seen some images online, but. How can it be better than this story, though? I mean, it, it might be possible, but wow, I can't see that happening. This this story just blew my mind. But we'll see. We'll see once we track those down, right, Misty? Yes, we'll have to track down all of these. And that is, yep, that's that. I'm going to write that on my list of life goals. Track down at least these issues, or at least to read them, because these are like 80s, 50s, 60s, 70s. That's the kind of stuff I like. Mm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. We all know that by now. Yeah. And there's a Vampirella in there. And there's like, a, let's see, a Creepy. So yeah. we've got some 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 badass uh, horror mm. horror mag- magazines. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there's so many good ones. I'll, I've got those. I've got the Vampirella one and the Creepy one, but I haven't read them because I've been buying them in collections. I should send you one of them some someday. And then um, we are, you can you can have a look, and then we can re- revisit we, this on a future episode, and see how it. We compares. should do a whole. We should do a whole um, episode on Vampirella, perhaps. Well, apparently we have to, according to one <laughs> listener, which we'll deal with later, um, listener. So yeah, the inbox of darkness will take care of that <laughs> when we get to the feedback. <laughs> Wow, you're you're good at reminding me what's important, Misty. Thanks. You know, I would have completely forgotten about that. On topic. <laughs> exactly. So Vampirella and Poe never met the two. And the, the two never met. <laughs> but I'm sure Poe would have liked to. If he I'm, would have yeah. he would have had a poster of, of Vampirella up a in poster. <laughs> if he could have afforded one. <laughs> oh my god. But it probably would have cost like three years' salary. <laughs> Your, your puns are off the chain. Did you just call it a poster? <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> wow. Wow. No, I'm impressed. I'm impressed. You've taken it to the next level. I'm going to have to work hard to compete with you now, Misty. But, you know, mm-hmm. one, one thing I wanted to ask you about the research you've done, you've probably come across this. I mean, obviously, everyone in Poe's world, in, in his, his contemporaries, everyone knew about the Black Death, which had raged through Europe a couple of centuries before, before the 19th century. Obviously, it was like in the you know, Middle Ages, but um, the Dark Ages. But um, was there something in Poe's time, maybe, you know, just before he wrote the story, something com- comparative or, be, you know, 
akin to maybe what what we're experiencing now maybe some kind of disease that ran you know through the country that maybe inspired him to write this obviously his inspiration came from he wanted to criticize the upper classes but also the disease thing you know made me think about that did did you come across Mm -hmm. that in your writing or in your research misty i didn't i didn't come across anything that would suggest that there was uh any any virus or sickness sort sort of ravaging Boston during that time? I think it was only, yeah, it was probably, I mean, directly based off of the Black Death. I mean, it even has similar symptoms to the Black Death, although this this Red Death is way more lethal. And, and I mean, it rather than taking weeks to die or days to die, it, it literally takes a couple of minutes <laughs> once you get the full effect of the this virus. So, yeah. But I'd also like to say that I didn't do an endless amount of research. And there are actual Edgar Allan Poe experts out there who probably know uh, better than I do what Mm. was happening in Boston during the 1800s, early Mm. 1800s. So, you know, if there's somebody listening to this who knows the more context about perhaps viruses or illnesses or sicknesses that were ravaging Boston in the early 1800s. I'd be happy to hear about it. Um, I didn't directly come across anything like that, but yeah. that doesn't necessarily mean that it, it wasn't happen. happening. <laughs> yeah. I'm no. sure there, there were probably multiple, you know, he, he might've been concerned. I mean, STDs were like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of his possible causes of death could have been syphilis. So, <laughs> Yeah, like this could have been inspired by a couple of. <laughs> oh my God, poor Poe. Like, we're you know. no, <laughs> we're he being was mean. Fine. He was married to his cousin, so he was probably, I don't know. Probably it, chased. But she died, you know, before he did. I mean, didn't she die when she was like 24? And then he had a couple of years of being single. And he wrote like lots of poems about other ladies, you know, between her death and his death. So he must have had some illicit, you know, liaisons i don't know but... i feel like such a jerk to be like yeah he, was, he probably was afraid of dying of syphilis that's what this is about poe you're, you're fine don't haunt me like yeah we, is... we respect oh, you yeah this uh <laughs> no 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 i i'm oh i take that back too i mean i i think the guy you know he was a romantic he even championed yeah. American romanticism, you know, and poetry and stuff like that. Now, this doesn't mean I don't mean romantic in terms of, you know, he, you know, he, he likes to show a lady a good time. I mean, in the literary sense, he was one of the romantics. And, you know, those guys feel very deeply, like when they write a poem about, you know, their long lost loves. The, the, that's not yeah. just a, a short, you know, like, you know, quick bump and jump in the dark. That's like, you yeah. know, oh, I lost the love of my life and I want to die. His his dedication to being an artist and to being a writer um, was so strong that his family disinherited him because he refused to go into business and become a, what they thought was a proper gentleman. So, yeah, he was a, he was a diehard. <laughs> he was yeah. diehard for, You're right. for the life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had a very acrimonious relationship with his with his adopted father because of that. And, you know, he eventually severed all ties and, you know, to his financial 
ruin actually because he was disinherited like you say and then he had to make it as a writer but you know it bears mentioning that he was probably the first writer who who subsisted solely on income from his writings you know so he was like a, a writer that really lived the life of a writer whereas the rest of, of the folks had to rely on other jobs to make ends meet but, po but didn't. at the same yeah. time did he really subsist on it if he ended up like dying in oh, a yeah. gutter? You're right. Oh <laughs> you know? no, I retract I that as well. Oh First writer who didn't die in the gutter. That was the writer that should be getting credit for. I know what you mean. Oh, okay. No, I, I take that back. I shouldn't say that. He didn't really. <laughs> really gave it a go. I mean, the courage. Mm. That, that's really what it takes to you know pursue art, especially in an environment that's not supportive of it, like mm. Boston in the 1800s. Like uh, exactly, it takes courage because you don't know if you're gonna make it. You are like, well, I might die in a gutter, but <laughs> I'm gonna write some kick-ass stories in the yeah, meantime. I'm gonna take that chance, <laughs> you know. So. Well, he took yeah. that chance and look, he's a legend now. So he's been immortalized. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, in terms of this story, though, we've discussed, you know, possible inspirations, right, Misty? Like, obviously, his critique of, of the masquerade balls being thrown by the rich at the time, but also, you know, the possibility of a disease having been, you know, a concern for people at that time. We don't know. But um, I think this is unlike most of his stories because it's not set in contemporary times well for him it's you know it's it's said in the past he did write other stories similar to that but not a lot and what i like here is you know this is sort of contained in its own universe it's almost saying that the entire world of this universe ended you know because the the, the very last lines of of the story the mask of the red death has always stuck with me throughout all of these years you know where the red death held sway over all and that's sort of showing, in my mind at least, the end of the world. Not just the end of this Prince Prospero's country, but literally this is it for humanity. At least that's how I want to interpret it, <laughs> being the nihilist yeah. bastard I am. No, I mean, and when you're a writer, you want to amp up the drama. So, <laughs> of course, that. you're going to be like, <laughs> and everything was over. Every Absolutely everything just gone, destroyed, nothing more. Because all of these nobles <laughs> were, their greed destroyed the whole entire universe. Yeah, that's right. You want to be dramatic, and he definitely nailed that. Man, I really enjoyed, you know, all these Poe factoids. Now I want to do some more research on him. You've inspired me. Um, but do you have more or do you, do you want to get into the comic? I'm ready I for more. That's all. I believe I mentioned everything that I wanted to mention. If you want to know more about Poe, please go ahead and research him. He's a fascinating guy. Uh, if you can get past the child marriage thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a lot. He's like, I didn't even know about that until recently. And I grew up reading this writer. And that's just one of those things that we do think about these days. And, and so it should be mentioned and taken to account and all of that. But it's not going to affect, it doesn't affect this story. So I'm just going just gonna to move along yeah. to... Um, should we get into the synopsis of yep. the story? Yeah, that's also all you, Misty. I'll let you do the synopsis mm -hmm. for 
poet, you're the Poe expert, and um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. The last synopsis you did was pretty great, so um, Thank you. now the pressure's on. Can you tell me again? I know I have to live up to that first episode. <laughs> Okay, so this is Richard Corbin's Mask of the Red Death. The introduction of this story starts with an old crone. She is lost and wandering through the ruins of a kingdom. She comes across a hooded figure hiding in the ruins. This figure is our narrator, who begins to tell her the story of what happened to the kingdom. And that's where our story begins. Yeah. This is already a little bit different than than the the original tale listeners because there's no um you know old lady walking around among ruins looking for stories or narrating stories. This is all part of the comic uh, spirits of the mm-hmm. dead. Yeah, which is um just getting a horror narrator in there. Which is of course yeah, a horror comic like trope. Our, she's like our uh, observer, sort of a the audience interjected into the story yeah that's that's a great way to put it yeah and it works for me it, it definitely works i mean that doesn't take away from poe's original story in fact once we get rolling it it you know you you still have that poe um you know uh sense of dread you know that that is conveyed by the story so i i don't think all of these artistic um reimaginings that Corbin might have done detracted from the original tale at all. I, you know, I think it, it didn't enhance it either. I don't want to say that, but, you know, it definitely gave <laughs> us a different flavor of Poe. And there are so many flavors of Poe. There are. There, he's like, um, yep. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to make like a Baskin-Robbins joke, but I just <laughs> don't have brain power to do that. I just can't. I don't have it in me. I don't. Oh, don't worry about it. It's, it's for the best. <laughs> we'll edit that, that Baskin-Robbins joke in later. <laughs> no, Perfect. I'm kidding. Perfect. Okay. So our story begins. There was once a happy and peaceful kingdom. In this kingdom, all the peasants loved their king. Travelers through the land are said to have heard a troop of echoes whose sweet duties was but to sing in voices of surpassing beauty the wit and wisdom of their king. So this <laughs> this village was just crazy about their monarch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's, he was like a celebrity slash... I mean, in fact, he's drawn to look like an Arnold Schwarzenegger looking like, so... Oh my gosh, I had the... I actually wrote that down. Like, I was oh. going to talk about that later in his character. <laughs> like, what he looks like. Yeah, yeah, he he is a... Uh, that's exactly... He even has his haircut. Like, his yeah. exact same uh, haircut from... Oh, from Hercules Goes Bananas. Yes. Yeah. This is what, listeners, what it would be like if Arnold ran his own... Well, Eastern European country or something. Or, in fact, he did run <laughs> California, but... <laughs> So, oh wow, yeah, a bit of uh, yeah, foreshadowing. Sorry, I was just blowing my mind for a second <laughs> thinking of how Arnold Schwarzenegger is governor of California. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I still can't believe I it. Like, yeah, that's actually a real thing. Yeah, that's a, yep, that's mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, crazy, crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. 
Okay, so the villages, they love their king. Uh, they're crazy about him. What could go wrong? <clears throat> All right, so <laughs> the Red Death happens. The next thing we see are panels of afflicted peasants with bloody faces, and they're dying from the Red Death, and their crops are dying, and they're starving, and on the horizon we see what looks like a pile of burning bodies. Yeah. So it's really not good times. It's really not good times for these peasants who are being hit super hard with the Red Death. Hmm. It's hell. Yeah, it's hell. It's like a landscape of hell, really. I mean, it's a hellscape that Corbin illustrated here. Everything's, you know, bleak. There are crows or scavenger birds, you know, vultures flying around, picking at corpses. Yeah, this is this is the apocalypse, you know, illustrated beautifully by Corbin. Yeah, I'm just going to turn to that page really quick because it is pretty horrific. Yeah, you've got like bodies being burnt in these large bonfires and um you know there's a lady in one panel carrying her dead child the naked body of her oh, dead child yeah oh, oh my gosh it's so Damn. sad and and all the time in the background you see the castle and this <sighs> this like gorgeous medieval castle with its flags flying high mm. and it's like 40 turrets yeah <laughs> like... golden spires yeah it's got a, you're right it has a lot of turrets <laughs> mm-hmm. yep a lot of turrets you gotta show off when you're a prince with that much money to flash you know you gotta have a lot of turrets on your castle that's how people know that you're a rich you're rich as fuck <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's not even flying the flags half mast you know for you know no he's it's still no. full mast yeah still up there mm-hmm. yeah so we then we meet our arnold schwarzenegger looking king <laughs> <laughs> oh oh but first before we meet him i'd like to read a stanza from poe's poem the haunted places oh. which is featured in this comic yeah. um it is not part of the original story mask of the red death but it is actually from a poem he wrote called The Haunted Palace. That's right. Uh, I said haunted places. It's Haunted Palace. The Haunted Palace. Um, so I'm just going to read this poem really, really quick. Sure. I mean, I'm, I can... I will read it at a good pace. <laughs> no, no, go ahead. You know, I'm looking forward to it because this is a great poem. Inspired a Vincent Price movie, too, called The Haunted Palace, where they sort of married Poe with Lovecraft uh, in the 60s. Ooh. Yeah. Another, Ooh, uh, I have to check that one out. Yeah, Ooh. and later, later we still have to talk about The Mask of the Red Death, Vincent Price movie too, and Roger Corman doing all these Poe adaptations. we got to work oh, that in. But we'll some, Maybe, yeah. We'll yeah, see. if we have time, we'll, we'll get to the poem first. <laughs> okay, first I'm going to read this super spooky, creepy stanza from The Haunted Palace. But evil things in robes of sorrow assailed the monarch's high estate... Ah, let us mourn, for never morrow shall dawn upon him desolate. And round about his home the glory that blushed and bloomed is but a dim-remembered story of the old time entombed. Wow, chills. I've got chills and they're multiplying. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> okay, perfect. <laughs> perfect. So now we meet our young Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> <laughs> Finally. And he's concerned. So he's he's concerned. He's at least a little bit concerned. He asks his advisors what he can do. And they tell him he could distribute food to the poor and clean up their sanitary conditions, but that it would deplete the royal treasury. So he says, sure, let's do that. And then he helps the poor and everyone lives. And that's how the story ends. <laughs> yeah, right. Is this Poe or is this, you know, <laughs> little women? <laughs> No, of course, he does not say, sure, let's do that. He says, how about instead of feeding the poor or giving them sanitary conditions, I will throw a party. I could throw a party. Yeah. Basi <laughs> basically, that's exactly what he says. Jeez. Oh. Yeah. He's like, how about instead of all that, I'll throw a party. <laughs> <laughs> And what a party this is. I mean, talk about sparing no expense. Damn, this is this is oh, yeah. lavish. <laughs> he knows this this king character likes to party. He knows how to party and he's gonna go all out for this party. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know how some people have themed parties? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, his theme is different colored rooms. So he's got a blue room, an orange room. Purple, white, no, blue, <laughs> blue, orange, white, violet, green, and... And he does have purple, even though violet and purple is strangely similar. Yeah, he yeah. does have a purple. Yeah, weird. <laughs> I wrote that down and I was like, that must be a mistake because violet and purple are the same yeah. thing. Yeah. No, he's got a blue, orange, purple, white, violet, purple and violet, white, green. Purple and violet. Different colors of rooms. Yeah. Um, and then he has another room, which is in, it'll be red. He says it'll be red. Yeah. Um, That's right. yes. And he also says, well, is this in the story? Uh, the party will be held in the safety and security of the castellated abbey. Yeah, that's right. It's a castellated abbey an abbey, but that basically looks like a castle with turrets and, and walls and, and um, they're well provisioned, apparently. You know, they can survive for months on end. Um, and, mm -hmm. you know, they've, they've locked themselves to sequester um, themselves from the... And protect themselves from the Red Death, basically. And, um, you know, shutting out the outside world. I think there was a great line about that, too, in the original story. Um, in fact, you might have quoted that on Twitter recently, <laughs> that line. Oh, I definitely did, um, but I did not put it in my notes. <laughs> no, but it's so, I mean, it's so apropos if you think about it, about what yeah. the rich are doing now. I mean, the other day I heard that some, you know, rich American folk have petitioned the New Zealand government to, to sort of like let them live there to escape <laughs> what's happening. I mean, this is basically it. I think I've got that line, though, if you quickly want to, to listen to it. It says that... Mm, uh, okay, here it is. The abbey was amply provisioned. With such precautions, the courtiers might bid defiance to contagion. The external world could take care of itself. In the meantime, it was folly to grieve or to think. And then it goes yeah. on to, to describe his 
ridiculously extravagant pleasures that he provided for his friends and courtiers and, and royal mates. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And um, that is haunting. The, when I read that sentence in Poe's original text, I was... I had to put it on Twitter because... It, it there's no grieving happening right now, at least in my country. There's so many deaths and there's no grieving. This is getting political. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I mean, it's this... like, you know, what you were saying about the wealthy people who are just boarding themselves up and they're like, this isn't happening. Mm. And <laughs> they're not acknowledging all of the horror that's happening around them. And, uh, the whole concept of a party is to it's like a great big distraction and that's what the prince is providing for them he's saying you know don't think about that stuff don't think about like the peasants with their bleeding faces and all of the like dead children and burning bodies like just come to my house we're gonna dance i'm gonna have acrobats i'm gonna have trapeze artists every room will be a different color i got this really awesome clock (laughs) Yeah, that ebony clock. Oh, that thing's a big deal, um, a big part of the story. But, you know, he's obviously putting it there to show off, you know, his, his yeah. riches. But, you know, it serves another purpose entirely. But, you know, it's it's true what you say. He's, um, you know, if you think about the name of the story, Mask of the Red Death, the way it's written, M-A-S-Q-U-E, a mask has two, obviously, two meanings in this context. A mask was a kind of a, a courtly entertainment you know, offered by, you know, rich folks back in the day where it involved like a a show, a drama, a dramatization of some historical event, but, you know, with the jesters and and with music. And, you know, so this this basically says that, you know, the Mask of the Red Death is obviously what we would get later, a literal mask. But it's also these fools, you know, entertaining themselves while doom is at the door, literally. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's uh, putting a mask over the truth. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's what Poe intended wholeheartedly. I mean, smart guy that he was with that bulbous head of his that housed this incredible brain. (laughs) Way too smart for this world. He must have intended this. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I'd like to read a stanza from the original text about the king's the king's plans and i i don't i don't know if it's okay to make this so much about the original text because it's so it's so glor- just glorious you know but no, go uh, ahead. i just thought it, just thought it was really funny the way that they described <laughs> described this king uh his plans so this is from the original text his plans were bold and fiery and his conceptions glowed with barbaric luster <laughs> There are some who would have thought him mad. His followers felt that he was not. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, that's so in line and in tune with the current zeitgeist of the world. Think about it. Oh my goodness, the cults that we have to deal with in our everyday lives. Damn. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, That's a great line. I'm so glad you read it. (laughs) Thank you. And so, yeah, um, and so I uh, didn't do research into this, but this king was very, in this comic, the, the king is excited about his clock. So he's very excited to show it off 
um, it, and rightfully so. And this is the clock that is in the red room. And yeah. he's he's excited to show off this clock. It's 20 foot tall, at least. I mean, it looks like that's hard to judge from like a comic illustration, but it's a tall clock because it's inside of a castle. It goes all the way up to the ceiling. Yeah. A floor to ceiling clock. Yeah. <laughs> With layers of exposed gears and a long pendulum suspended from a pivot that looks like a skull. Exactly. Yeah, why put that there? I mean, talk about foreshadowing. Jeez. So basically, the Red Death would turn into a self-fulfilling prophecy just based on these people having to monitor this clock every hour upon the hour. Oh, yeah. Because in the original tale, Misty, uh, Poe makes mention of the fact that every hour when this clock booms or or uh, bongs or whatever you would call it. Oh, they probably needed a couple of bongs there, but, you know, they probably had some. <laughs> no, but they, I'm sure they had bongs. They, they must they have had some. Crazy some... medieval bongs. <laughs> where they're probably, yeah, never yeah. mind. I'm not going to speculate on what that is. Listeners, if you know what a medieval bong looks like, <laughs> uh, email us a picture of that. I would love to see it. I'm sure our <laughs> listeners will definitely know. They're freaks like us, so <laughs> that's by no means an insult, listeners, that we love you. We love you. We love the freakish. But yeah, this clock, you know, it, it disturbed the guests, right, Misty? Every hour when it chimed. Basically, the guests all stopped and it chimed so loudly that all their revels were interrupted. Yeah. And and this made them notice the fact that time is passing, you know, and another hour has leaked away from their lives. And they looked at it with fear and awe. And there was also this crazy rule that Prince Prospero had, like, everybody can wear whatever color they want in the other colored rooms. But in the red room, nobody could wear red. You know, oh yeah, was... I'm, I'm getting to that part. I'm okay, cool, to that cool, part. cool. I'll I'm let like, you. Go. I still have a little bit to say about this. <laughs> okay. Fantastic clock. Yeah, go mad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, from the original text, there stood against the western wall a gigantic clock of ebony. Its pendulum swung to and fro with a dull, heavy, monotonous clang, and when the minute hand made the circuit of the face and the hour was to be stricken, there came from the brazen lungs of the clock a sound which was clear and loud and deep and exceedingly musical, but of so peculiar a note. Whoa. What a description. (laughs) The note, uh, there's something about this clock where when it, chimes the hour the sound of it is so disturbing that everybody stops dancing they stop talking the music stops playing and and i i I have things to say about what this clock represents so so maybe we could talk maybe we should leave that for later when we're discussing like yeah you know like summary of the story and then talk more a little bit more about what this clock is yeah what it represents that's a good call Yes. So this is all summed up wonderfully in the comic, uh, just with one neat little panel when the king character says, when the clock strikes the hour, it will certainly give the masqueraders a turn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no so, yeah. joke. It does. Yeah, he sums it up real nice in this one panel because you don't, they don't have all day to tell this story. So they're, you know, yeah, let's they're... go people. 
yeah they're making use <laughs> of the comic medium and uh, comic art to its full effect it, it's so wonderful i mean even the one single panel of these three guests looking at the clock chiming with these r- 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 images what well, these expressions of revulsion on their faces right misty mm-hmm. everyone has a different expression one looks awed but disgusted and another another one looks like pensive like oh this is death coming from us and the other one's like cowering behind the three you know shivering with terror it's just a wonderful economical way of quickly conveying what poe wanted to what poe did convey with these words yeah yeah you see that there's something significant about this clock in this story exactly yeah and just so and like you you mentioned earlier just like the super sweet 16 (laughs) birthday party authoritarian diva that this king is uh he makes because you gotta you gotta do this if you're having a party that's gonna be off the chain you have to make some random rule to like flex your power you know (laughs) well god did it with the garden of eden so why not godlike (laughs) this is passed down from uh the the actual actual god yeah so king's just following in god's footsteps when he announces that no one is allowed to wear red (laughs) (laughs) so arbitrary yeah so So, weird don't come to my party in red (laughs) if you come to my party in red you will not be allowed in (laughs) yeah i mean at first i thought okay it's because of the red death they don't want that sort of like killing the fun like raining oh, on their yeah. parade but but misty think about it the entire room was painted red so why do that <laughs> it doesn't make sense if you look at it that way Ugh. right um well in and i think this might be actually partially due to the comic straying from the original story because in the original story the last room is not red it is actually black yeah and it is it has a window that has red window panes in it mm. so when the light shines through it makes the room just as horrifying black red like a delicious fear you know fear room it's great yeah, yeah. death room of death you yeah, know room of so death. yeah so um that could be that could be the reason a, um, behind the yeah like a deviation from that story because yeah. when you when you mentioned that i was like oh of course because they don't he doesn't want anybody to think about the red death so nobody's allowed to wear red because you're not supposed to think about it. You're not supposed to, yeah. you know, it's outside. It's not going to hurt us. We're safe in here. We're not even going to think about it. Nobody's even allowed to wear red. Yeah. That's how much we're not, we're in denial that it's like not going to affect us, you know? That's right. That's the only way. I mean, in the post story, it makes complete sense because like you said, the room <laughs> was black. But in this story, it kind of, uh, it's, it's like almost showing that the king is mad. I mean, he would he would have to be mad and, you know, to to do this sort of like this. Nobody wants to go into that room because of the clock. He must have known that, you know, it's sort of like, OK, that room is there. But, you know, we're just putting it there to freak out my guests. <laughs> That's yeah. basically how I interpreted yeah. it. It's kind of like when somebody has a room full of sports memorabilia that you're really not into or something and they lead you in there and you're just you have to pretend oh, to be God. impressed because it's like their party and you're oh, like, "Oh. Wow, that's... this really nice autographed jersey." Like <laughs> from from what, and, whoever. You know, it's their party. You're not going to be rude to them. So this king is just like, "Check out my awesome 
bl- all black interior design with this red window and like d- crazy scary clock with the skull for a pivot. Damn. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. Oh, it's crazy. But even black foreshadows it, you know, even black. I mean, it, it sort of makes me think the king subconsciously knew what was coming. But, you know, who knows? Who knows what goes on in the mind of a steroid adult brain like this Arnold clone? <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. So getting back to the story, the king says, it will be great fun. It'll be great fun. Mm. So everyone shows up. All of the nobles, at least. <laughs> in the story, in the comic book, they don't really, like, define them as nobles. In the, I keep going back and forth. In the comic, we'll just say everyone shows up. They're having a blast. Feeling safe. Uh, people are eating, dancing. They're making out. They're <laughs> pouring wine into each other's mouths. It's an orgy. Some <laughs> They're snorting wine? Yeah, it looks like one that bird knows guys definitely wine. snorting wine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're going Yeah, 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 yeah. Um some guest butts are out. <laughs> <laughs> and wow, Corbin draws a good butt. I mean it's it's grotesque in a way, but you can definitely see, you know, <laughs> the appeal. We'll talk more about Corbin's predilections in art later, but yeah, this guy could draw some filthy <laughs> stuff if he wanted to. Yeah, yeah, he had, I thought, fun drawing all these butts and boobs yeah. everywhere. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so they're, they're, all the guests, they're enjoying all the luxuries the kingdom is willing to offer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and this is actually in the comic, and it is the stanza, or I don't know if it's really a stanza, an excerpt from Poe's original story, which I'm going to read now. There was much of the beautiful, much of the wanton, much of the bizarre, something of the terrible, and not a little of that which might have excited disgust. To and fro in the seven chambers there stalked, in fact, a multitude of dreams, and these, the dreams, writhed in and about, taking hue from the rooms and causing the wild music of the orchestra to seem as the echo of their steps. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh, my God. Poe, no, man, this guy just, I don't know. This is going to be my dreams tonight. Yes. Damn. Oh, he's good. Oh, my God. And you, oh. Just think how so many good. women he could have seduced with this kind of amazing <laughs> I know. language. You didn't need to marry your child cousin. You could, what, what are you doing, Poe? Could she appreciate your wonderful flowery seductive language edgar i think not anyway she might have been some ingenue or some genius i don't know who knows it doesn't matter yeah it doesn't matter (laughs) just don't don't do that yeah like it totally just doesn't matter uh but i think that yeah nope not gonna (laughs) we're not gonna get out oh i'm i'm throwing you off track again go (laughs) go ahead but you have, I mean, yeah, what do you, it's like when, when scam artists go through all the trouble of scamming where they're like creating fake documents and they're fake personas and like living all these lies. That's so much more work than just having a job, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like Poe, Poe, you could have, you could have been a king. You could have been a king, but 
if you're you fell into the trap of toxic masculinity. <laughs> I guess I don't know. Exactly. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Poor Edgar. We he already could have been flawless. He could have been flawless record, but no. No, that's the only blemish. Anyway, that's the last we'll say on this. Uh, rest in peace, Mr. Poe. We'll talk no more. I yeah. know. Oh gosh, I know, right? So, um, like that's a whole different episode, whole different podcast. All right, so people are having a great time, and they're forgetting about the world outside, where peasants are dying and having to bury their children, and they're starving to death. And the king is benevolently sitting on his throne, basking in the success of his party. He has on a purple Orville Peck-looking face mask, <laughs> tunic, and gloves. He's all purple. You know who Orville Peck is? Yes. <laughs> yes. Doesn't he look like Orville Peck? He's got yes. like, the exact same... Oh, my yeah. God. That's such an appropriate <laughs> description or analogy. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Classic. Um, and he's also wearing his best military looking body jewelry I don't, like I don't really know what those are called but he's wearing some kind of like gold bandoleros and necklaces layered necklaces Mr. T swag yeah yeah he's all swagged out uh, <laughs> he's the king of fringe his mask is fringe his tunic has fringe his cape has fringe <laughs> He's just ready for the occasion. He's dressed for the night. Yeah, I'm pretty sure, <laughs> like you said, you know, Corbin might have. I don't know if Orwell Pick was, you know, you know, um, already like a thing when he was drawing this Corbin. He must have been, but yeah, there's definitely an Orwell Pickian kind of. I mean, the king doesn't show his face. He's not a country musician, but he's definitely not, you know, <laughs> the mask mm-hmm. alone. You know, like, mm-hmm. oh man, and he's probably, you know, yeah, those Canadians weird <laughs> i was also getting uh vibes of wesley from the princess bride a little bit oh, yeah. with, like the way that it's kind of a bandana that's tied around the top half oh, of yeah. the head and as the face mask going down oh that that's also a good one yeah yeah i watched that movie just yeah. the other day so that's fresh in my mind yeah it's a lot oh, of so good. influence oh i love that film Anyway, so um, let yeah, this this guy's got away with words. This this prince. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's he is sitting on his throne, looking amazing, feeling great. When he sees somebody standing in the crowd wearing red. Yeah. And this enrages him, and he orders this person to be thrown out of his party. And we see the stranger closer up a little bit in the next in the on the next page in the frame. It is a person in head to toe red bandages, dressed kind of like a crimson mummy. Yeah. And they're also wearing a red mask over their face. Yeah, you know what it looks like? It looks like a World War One victim, you know, who's bleeding through his bandages. Oh man! Okay, you never want to see these pictures. They haven't been colorized, but some some have, you know. And it's horrible, you know. Like they, they ran out of bandages for guys who were like bleeding profusely from gas attacks and bombs and stuff. Oh and no! This guy reminds oh. me of that. 
Yeah, yeah, he's all bandaged up, and his bandages are in tatters, too. He's got a a tattered cape, a tattered cape on that looks like it's made from burlap, which is really uncomfortable on bleeding skin. If you have the red death, it means you're bleeding from your pores. Yeah, jeez. Oh, I Yep, I had the stanza on, like, the actual symptoms of the Red Death. I keep saying stanza. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Poe was a poet, stanza. so he did write a lot of stanzas <laughs> in his life. And you could kind of see the Mask of the Red Death as a story, as a long-form poem, just without the rhyme, you know? Because yeah. he writes in such a beautifully illustrative way. It's so evocative of, of poetic imagery that it's like a poem. In fact, most of his prose is like that i'll read that later when we talk about the art because that's that has to do with the art so i'm going to read that later about the bloody bandages the stance that has to do with those yeah um yeah so he sees this stranger and he's in he's furious because the stranger is reminding everybody there of the color red and the red death and he's like how dare you everybody here's supposed to feel safe and like everything's fine and how dare you come into my party and remind everybody that it's not okay <laughs> <laughs> oh man Damn. right so <laughs> a loyal subject offers to throw the stranger out he tries to grab them and he falls back dead we see his uh we see his red death ridden face twisted in horror the king's clock strikes the hour. Bong. <laughs> Bong, clunk. Bong, clunk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what an ominous sound effect. Oh, I love it. The king grabs a spear and throws it at the stranger. Yeah, he's it going... It hits them... Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. I wanted to, to say he's going full-on Conan the Barbarian here. You know, yeah, just... yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> He takes matters into his own hands. He's like, well, this guy didn't take care of business. I'm going to jump in here. He grabs the spear. He throws it at the stranger. It hits the it hits the stranger square in the chest and goes in. And then the stranger does that amazing action movie hero move where he just, like, <laughs> he pulls the arrow out of his chest. Thunk, oh. And he throws it to the floor. Clatter. Clatter. <laughs> Oh, I love it. It's it's brilliant. And you know, the mask is also eerie because while he's doing that, it kind of looks like a smiley face mask. It's like a round, you know, smiley mask, but it doesn't have a smile. It's just got these teeth prominently yeah. displayed, but it's blood splattered all over. And oh, did you see the, the, yeah. the blood like spraying when the spear hits it? Oh, it's, yeah. it's brutal. It looks like... It looks like the fear emoji where like the mouth is just kind yes. of in a grimace, yes. like a grimace. And then the eyes are wide open. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, it's a brilliant set of panels. But then the next page, Misty, that's the money shot for me when for, for no reason, I mean, just to freak out everybody, that's probably the reason he takes off the mask. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. He rips the spear out of his chest, throws it to the floor. And then takes his mask off to reveal drip a skull dripping in blood. <laughs> oh, but still swathed in these bloody bandages. But you've, you you you're literally seeing these orifices like oozing blood. Yeah. Right? 
Yeah, yeah. The whole panel is red. It's a beautiful panel. It's it's probably my favorite yeah, panel same. in the whole story. We're definitely, definitely. Gonna, we're definitely gonna put that up on the blog, listeners. So look look out yeah. for that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the big reveal happens. Um, the stranger pulls off their mask and surprise, it's the Red Death. Jeez. <laughs> and everyone in the room begins to die. Yeah. They start bleeding from their eyes and ears and mouths, and they've got these blood blossoms on their flesh. It's horrific. And the one guy looks like he's been kicked in the nuts. No, no, no wait a minute. That's a woman. That's a woman. Oh, that's a woman. Oh, sorry. Still. Oh. Yeah, she's like uh, doubled over on the floor and naked except for a mask and leg warmers. Yeah, leg and, warmers. Like oh, rave damn. boots. Yeah. They're like furry, they're like the medieval equivalent of furry rave boots. Yeah. I'll say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Poor. Yeah. All of his guests, they're they're all just done for. They're all writhing in agony. They say, "Prospero, your Majesty, help us!" Ah, Iaga. There's a lot of actually really good sound effects on this speech. It's mostly sound effects. There's a lot. Limited dialogue, mostly sound effects. Yeah. Ah! <laughs> <Hey>! <laughs> yeah! <laughs> oh, man. I'm losing it. <laughs> so, uh, yes, we see a page of the guests. They're all dying. The Red Death is revealed. The king is desperate. He attacks the Red Death figure using his bare hands to crush the skull and he's trying to tear him apart just physically tear this red death figure apart with his bare hands and he tears and tears at the bandages only to find nothing underneath them <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it crumbles into fragments of red splotched you know bone and yeah. uh, wow look at his face the way uh, the king's face is illustrated the, the the bear the hatred you know the intense uh, disgust at that having to grab the skeleton and oh man this is more in line with the original story now where the red death turns out to be nothing at all just you know yeah yeah but here corbin yeah. makes him an actual zombie like fiend a, a, a literal reaper yeah, yeah like yeah. he could he could almost have his own spin-off this character oh, i would love it having him as a <laughs> horror host or a narrator oh. yeah like he's he's buff he's weirdly buff like he's you see on the page where the king tears his skull apart, like, he's got muscles, even though he's a skeleton who's deteriorating. He's covered in blood, but he's buff. Uh, he, yeah. could, well, he could fight crime. <laughs> he could, definitely. Well, I mean, this goes in line with something I was going to mention later, but I might as well mention this now. He could be a reflection of the king himself, you know, because oh. he's like a mirror. You know, of oh my king. gosh! Like in the Vincent Price movie. Yes, yes, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Ex- yep, because the king is Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and uh, you know, he's going all hasta la vista, baby, on this mirror image oh, of yeah. him. <laughs> oh yeah, you know, I love to see a bloody skull ripped apart with somebody from somebody's bare hands. You, just, <laughs> you, you know, love when... to see it, folks. 
who doesn't? I mean, come on. Anybody who listens to this podcast probably does. You know, when he threw the spear at the Red Death and it thunked into his chest, I was kind of like listening to Arnold in my mind from Predator saying, stick around. <laughs> Those horrible one-liners he used yeah. to have. <laughs> well, yeah, the Red Death is like uh unstoppable force like schwarzenegger in the 80s <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah so there you go very good analogy uh, <laughs> yeah so uh the king's magnificent clock and the kingdom around it crumbles to the ground and you see that in on the following page yeah then and then the narration reads and darkness and death and decay held illimitable dominion over all. Oh, man. You know, I got goosebumps when you read That's like my favorite Poe line or ending to one of his stories ever. I just, I love it. I love that ending. Illimitable yeah. dominion. Oof. Oof. Oh. <laughs> it's so, and the, the alliteration. I mean, the, the de-alliteration in that one, you know, darkness, decay, death, dominion. Oh, I love it. Mm-hmm. so so poetic mm, beautiful yeah he makes those words count post seducing me he was he's shredding he's shredding exactly. on the guitar of the english language yeah. <laughs> he's making me all hot and bothered from beyond the grave here i'm telling you the guy <laughs> i know words do that to me too <laughs> oh man if i was if i was you know otherwise inclined i'd be a necrophiliac now and go hunt up some a post grave <laughs> Okay, that's gross. I bet they've got bars over it for just that reason. There's probably some some wild people out there who are like, <laughs> you know, diehard, literal diehard fans. Oh, oh die oh. hard! Oh my god! Oh, you're so horrible. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's a compliment. Oh my goodness. Oh, but I. I also dig that panel though that the one where they have that they feature that quote with the red sun in the background you know and sort of illuminating these ruins and the the sun just this this red sun setting or it might be yeah, the sun the rising I'm not sure. oh so beautiful the colors are beautiful in, in in on that page I really like those colors on that page it's really looks like a really modern color treatment with the gradations and that was one panel I was going to mention actually when we get into what of our one of our favorite panels are yeah but you are, you are correct that is a beautiful panel mm, yeah mm-hmm. lots of these lots of these panels are going to stand out later on I'm not going to be able to pick one but that's definitely going to be in my running for top one but you know um uh all I'm right cl- so oh just one last thing the the hooded figure ends his story there so you remember how we first met him hanging out in the ruins our old crone she was wandering around and she met this hooded figure who started Mm. to tell us the story Mm. so this is where he ends the story yeah and the crone asks what happened to the king and the hooded figure tells her it is his curse to haunt the ruins and then he gets the the red death and he dies <laughs> yeah yeah That's basically yeah it was all just he was hanging around waiting for someone to witness his final moments and yeah. lucky for us it was a storyteller <laughs> so. yeah 
Yeah, and it actually made me wonder too. Was that character the king? Like, yeah. was that figure the king? I think it was because look, he still got the purple vestments that he used to have in the party. Plus, obviously, he reworked it a little bit to to be you know to fit with his hermit lifestyle. But think about it: the very last panel where the kingdom crumbles, just above that, you see the prince standing in the ruins. He's still alive, and you know. He also says, "This is my tragic story." You know, he uses oh. those possessive pronouns there. So, um, yeah, it must be him. He still got the jawline too. Check him when he's screaming. <laughs> ah, his curse haunts these lonely ruins. <laughs> yes, you are correct. So, mystery solved. Now, Misty, since you've uh, done the sound effects, the the groaning and the grunting and the cries of pain. I want you to do these last two. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wait, okay. Uh, let's see. It says the red death, the red death, the red death, the red death. <laughs> oh, that last one's my favorite. Ooh, ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. It, it almost does sound like Orville Peck finishing off a country song (laughs) (laughs) oh no just yodel yodel it a little bit more (laughs) i actually (laughs) don't (laughs) super familiar with his music i know he's like a country rockabilly guy yeah no i'm not that i have to check him out i know like a lot of people that i know are big fans of him Mm, um Let's get the listeners involved again. Listeners, if you're overall overall pick fans, give us some recommendations. <laughs> also, I, I always want to start a thing where we ask listeners to make sound effects based on words we read in comics or something. Like, how would you make this sound? <laughs> oh, brilliant. Yeah, you can either type it to us or send it to us as MP3 files, listeners. Be our guests. <laughs> It'll have to be recordings, and then we'll just play them yeah. on air. <laughs> It'll make for some fun times. Yeah, do that, please. <laughs> Good idea, <Yeah>. Misty. <laughs> Thank you. So uh, after the king finishes dying from the Red Death, our crone figure hightails it out of there, and she's like, thanks for telling me this story. Bye. <laughs> I'm going to get out of here. She runs out. Uh, she says, well, I don't want to keep you. <laughs> I'll just be moving I'll along. <laughs> be moving along. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. No, I, I, I don't blame her. I did that last week, sprinting away from folks who were maskless. So, yeah, that's me. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I mean, she's doing the right thing. She is socially distancing from that infected king there so she's doing the right thing if you see somebody bleeding out of their pores you run the other way this is a public service announcement (laughs) (laughs) see somebody covered in bloody bandages or bleeding out of their face definitely run good call very good call (laughs) (laughs) so that that concludes the mask of the red death and i this is one of my favorite comic book horror stories but it's also one of my favorite horror horror stories permanently i have a period you know it's just like so embedded in my brain by this time i'm just uh, i'm so glad you offered to do a a show with the apocalyptic theme because that gave me the (laughs) chance to pick this story which which makes me wonder why i picked the second one at all but we'll get to that no they're both they both make total sense like it it makes both they both make sense they're both about uh i guess 
pandemics essentially yeah. yeah and ignorance ignorance and 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 you know like the the willing to submit to illusion rather than to face reality head on yeah all of that it's so yeah. topical yeah but, but misty thanks man so, that was a great synopsis and you know the synopsis became you know almost the whole discussion but you know i've still got notes i don't know about you you've probably still got tons of notes there's so much yeah. more to say we, we still got to get into that but i have notes on cover characters plot art favorite bits <laughs> of dialogue favorite panels and then we have our comic score oh yeah of course mm-hmm. okay great well let's get into that so i'll let you go first what are some you know um, ideas and, and thoughts that popped into your head while you were like doing this thing while you were researching um, so I guess uh, some ideas and thoughts that popped into my head huh I mean I don't know how you take notes but I'm like off the cuff stream of consciousness most often drunk when I take notes so, so oh my oh, gosh I'm, I'm like the opposite I'm like having coffee i'm making (laughs) titles everything has a separate header it's like i have like headers all the way down to h5 you know i like header one header two header three and then all the way down to h5 um so i have things distinctly separated into (laughs) cover characters plot art (laughs) you are my kind of freak you're like the opposite of me and that's what this podcast need needs so Thank How you. about we start by talking about the cover? Okay, the cover itself. Well, the cover has to be discussed in the context of the entire collection, right? So, um, but we, we, we have to do that because obviously when folks want to pick this up, the cover is the first thing they'll notice. I think the cover does have a little bit of a Red Death flavor because it's got that tapestry that sort of hangs behind the clock. But what mm-hmm. did you think about this cover? Um, well, I'd like to describe it first. We we have Edgar Allan Poe sitting at a desk writing with the quill, and he has broken the tip of his feather quill pen (laughs) because some sinister-looking creature seems to have caught his eye. Yeah. And we see the legs of perhaps a woman standing behind a red velvet curtain with large tassels and her monster hands are reaching for him and her face is shrouded in darkness <laughs> with an evil grin and glowing eyes oh god it, it's such a great cover but you know this is par for the course for corbin because he's he's known for these amazing covers but you know i love every bit about this the way he rendered poe the way he rendered the tapestry the detail and the way poe's like got his hand over his face saying, oh, not another one of my nightmares showing up to torment me, torment me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you can see that he's a tormented fella. Oh, man, this is so good, so good. I mean, I thought he would put a raven in, but I'm glad he didn't because I there's too much of Poe associated with the raven. I, I don't always like that. I mean, I love the raven, the poem, but I, I don't want Poe to always have a raven on his shoulder or always have a raven being there or a bust of palace or... You know, I, yeah. I like it when you do something new. And this is definitely focused more on Poe's horror. So this cover yeah. conveys that. It, it's hard to speculate on what an artist really is trying to portray, you know, so we can only really just interpret based on our subjective opinions. So it's <laughs> a disclaimer for everything I'm about to say. Um, so, yeah, uh, this 
maybe more represents just Poe's general fears and worries and concerns and they're sort of all represented as this shadowy figure standing behind this curtain yeah um yeah that's how i that's how i see it <clears throat> no so i that, agree yeah oh, sorry <laughs> no no i agree I, that's a that's a very good way to say it in fact that kills all of my future comments dead in the water <laughs> because <laughs> it would make them inadequate <laughs> Damn you. <laughs> <laughs> Checkmate. Yeah, so things I like things I like about this cover, I like the silhouette of the woman's head with the glowing eyes and the teeth. I think that looks pretty spooky and cool. Gnarly. I like the feather quill. I think that's illustrated really well. Um there's some there's a I don't know how much you want to go into this, but the way that they colored the cover of this, it's like um, kind of a hyper real coloring technique. And I should have done more research on this to know exactly what it's called. But it's this technique where things are sort of shaded to look very 3D using what looks almost like an airbrush or incredibly soft edges for something. So it's not really very graphic um, like, like dots, four colors, dots, and, and everything is the same medium. Yeah. What we what have mean, yeah. is, yeah, we have a graphic black and white ink illustration combined with uh, sort of a soft three-dimensional type shading technique. And, and I, I, I'm not sure if I'm a big of a fan of this style so much <laughs> like just in my personal taste you know <laughs> yeah i it almost makes it look i mean it has the effect of making it look uh sort of dated in terms of what modern colors can do but it also gives me that sense of okay this has been done by artisans not just by you know some computer colorist because in fact richard corbin and his wife if i'm not mistaken they colored this entire comic and uh, they are known for doing it old school, you know, coloring and inking by hand. Oh. Um, but, you know, don't quote me on that because they they might have had some, you know, editorial, you know, well, supervision. The, the comic itself is not in the style. It's just the cover yeah. that is like, That's right. it's just the cover. Yeah. Um, so what it is, it's like this combination 3D, but also graphic line art uh, and there's a way that it can look really good. Like, for example, in the Velvet Curtain, that has color being used as form and line to create a texture that kind of unites the line with the color. Hmm. Um, but when you look at an area such as Poe's hair, which is just flat black, in right next to his forehead, which is like... Uh, shaded in this kind of three-dimensional shading yeah there's there's almost too much of a gap there as far as like stylistically oh. there's too much of a stylistic gap where I know what you it mean. makes it look flat but also three-dimensional at the same time so it kind of is visually a little confusing yeah i can see that now <laughs> yeah before i didn't take much notice of the cover other than the fact that you know i liked it um 
with a cursory viewing, if you know what I mean. But now I see what you mean. There's a definite, a bit of discontinuation in the the, the package as a whole. The artistic flow is interrupted there briefly by that. Yeah, um, like I agree. not exactly complement two complementary styles together with the coloring and the inking on the cover. Yeah. So is it um, only the coloring that that does that, or what do you think about the the, the penciling itself? I I really dig the way he did Poe though. You know, you gave him these huge, massive eyes. You gave him this weird-shaped head, and that's basically what you need if you want to do an accurate Poe. But he also gave him these hairy hands. <laughs> yeah, he's got some Robin Williams hands going on there. <laughs> Gotta love it. Gotta love a hairy guy. Maybe Poe is a little bit hairy. Like, wonder. I wonder if he had uh, 70s, like, chest hair, you know? Like, oh, if he wanted to do the like frilly shirt open just a little bit you know <laughs> like... oh my god that's probably how he how he showed up every friday night at the tavern hello ladies and just ripped over his ripped open his frills <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, yeah 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 brilliant um no he looks good he the the poet the portrait of him looks like Poe. It looks like him. Mm. There's something a little bit weird happening with his nose. I don't want to go too critical into this because I feel like an like I could be such a snob when it comes to art, and I I want people to make art and feel happy for what they do, and and I think this is beautiful and good. There's just like I can really pick into things if I want to, <laughs> you know. No, like, it's good to instance, be obsessed. To be an I obsessive. Mean, one more thing, the background in, in this on this cover, this like kind of sponge paint uh, earth tone thing, mm, mm. that's exactly what my kitchen counter looks like in my apartment. It's like the exact same wow. pattern. It's the wow. exact same pattern. That's crazy. So weird. I thought I it, they, they used that to sort of, you know, um, show the, you know, the inner walls of the time in which Poe must have been you know, in whatever apartment he was languishing when he was writing, you know, to show the, the, the poverty of the poor guy, you know, because, you know, yeah. some, of, some of the walls are all, you know, peeling. And I mean, that's just the effect it gives me. It's not an actual wall. It's more like a, it could also be interpreted as a, you know, hazy mist or, you know, I don't know. Yeah, real general. It's a real, like, um, you don't want to be too specific because you don't want to make the picture too crowded and mm. by putting putting a detailed background in um so what we see is sort of a sponge paint sponge paint layer of, yeah. i just keep saying sponge paint <laughs> so yeah maybe it, you could use your imagination and imagine that it's like peeling paint inside of poe's poverty stricken room or like mold growing on the yeah. walls or something like that it's yeah. like a you know, the more you say yeah. sponge paint, the more yeah. I want to try to paint with a sponge now because I've never done it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I actually wouldn't recommend doing it because I don't think I've ever seen it done well. It's like a, right. this kitschy, I don't know. I, now I feel like I'm just offending everyone. There's probably <laughs> people out there who have sponge painted bathrooms that look great and they're like but i did it and it looks fine yeah. <laughs> it probably does but it's i'll say that it it's hard to do well but it's like an interior design technique that some people try that 
I enjoy using, so give it a shot. Maybe you like it. <laughs> <laughs> I will. Oh, I will, Misty. I will. <laughs> good. Good, good, good. Okay. All right. So cover. Do you want to, anything else to say no, about the cover? No, you basically, you know, knocked my comments out of, you know, whatever park it, they were in. <laughs> so <laughs> just, just, uh, yeah. Like, took my bocce ball of comments and knocked all of your bocce balls away from the I forget what the white ball is called in bocce but hey, you know what I'm saying. yeah I know what you mean and you're an artist so I'm just gonna consent that you've you know you've got it up on me when it comes to critiquing art so I'm not gonna go there but later I'm gonna challenge you <laughs> do it when yeah I feel up to it I will cry <laughs> no <laughs> I'm just kidding <laughs> Uh, okay. I'm gonna, not going to uh, poke the bear. About... <laughs> what? No, I'm just saying I'm not going to poke the bear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, living on the edge. Okay, characters. Let's get into characters. So um, I love the imagination shown in the characters in the party scene in this story. Yeah, me too. Like, I mean, Corbin actually went... He actually uh, uh, muted himself here. He went a little bit. Uh, he could have gone full out because he's renowned for drawing these lurid sexual imagery, you know, images. When it And, you know, the part of the or orgy that they discussed where it gets into, you know, they had some bizarre, you know, um, mutants. They had some, you know, people from a, you know, probably a traveling carnival or, you know, they had all these weird forms of entertainment and Corbin, you know, relishes drawing that kind of stuff. But here he went actually quite mainstream and he, you know, just drew a few boobs, but and a few splayed limbs all covered up by clothing. But he could have this. This is not the Corbin that, you know, he is when he's um, unfettered and, you know, without any yeah. restraints. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's an excellent um he has an excellent understanding of the figure and it is impressive to see renderings of the human figure done so small but so accurate you know because it's the smaller you draw the kind of the harder it is to make things look accurate yeah, i guess or in proportion. A little pen or pencil yeah so he's i think he he does an excellent job uh, like his figure work is amazing He's obviously um, like a master yeah, at what he, he does. Yeah. No, yeah. No question. So I, I love the characters in in the party scenes. They definitely don't all seem human. There's some that remind me of episodes of Star Trek Next Generation where I'm like, I'm pretty sure I've seen that character on STNG. <laughs> <laughs> you know what it reminded me of Star Trek was is that you know Kirk's alien loves that he's had you know relations with yeah. in the past. Oh my gosh! He yeah, like that, that first lady who's the green oh, green alien with kind of like a pineapple on her head. Oh, pineapple. Captain Kirk would have so <laughs> he would have done her and all of them. You know this would have been a Kirk fest of love. You know. Um, oh. oh, he loved this party. Oh yes, he would have loved this party. I mean, it's a good party. You gotta have a if you're trying to distract people from a deadly, deadly plague. You gotta have a good party. Debauchery and some orgies, yeah, yeah in every every single every, room, a different orgy. Every distraction 
that luxury and wealth can afford. Yeah, but I agree with you. Those characters are so distinctive, so yeah. Offbeat. I also like. I also like um, the kind of like bo- body positivity elements in here, mm. where we see the woman celebrating. She's in a tree pose. Um, she's not like being drawn for the male gaze. Like you can see, she's just drawn like a regular human lady woman body, and it's not like she's. You know, like yeah, she's in, she's represented enjoying herself. Um, so I think that's pretty cool. Mm. Uh, we see alien clapping, um, and uh, another char- so another character that we could we could talk about is the king. Let's talk about the king a little bit. Well, he's the most like if you can say fleshed out character in this whole thing because we don't get to see personality ticks from any of the other people except him unless you count the the crone narrating the story and the red death himself the red death is very dramatic he's he's got some kind of flair to him you know he's got uh, i won't say fashion sense at all but you know he's picked obviously his appearance for the the maximum effect you know but he's definitely not a drag queen (laughs) he's not a drag queen there's no cross-dressing happening um in this story unless no, no, it's fine. What I was not. going for is kind of I'm like sure a... There might be, but we don't, but we don't see it. Or yeah. we don't know, because there's not really defined... Some of these characters could... We don't know really, like, gender specifics about these characters. I actually even referred to the Red Death as they um, ah. for, for, a, for a while in my, in my notes, because... It's a skeleton, you know, yeah, but then, yeah. but then when you do see the actual like full physical form of the Red Death, he is a buff male shaped yeah. type man looking guy. Yeah. Yeah. Man dude, fella bro. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. No, no, no. The, the, I think I took that um, image in my mind from the original story because in the original story, the Red Death sort of walks through the cloud, drape, uh, crowd dressed in this cloak and just flinging it about and the people like sort of get out of his way almost like you know <laughs> like someone at a drag show you know when they show off and they normally oh, yeah. you know that's what it made me think of but in this story you're right the comic book story it, it's not like that at all he's more like a sad lonely you know member of the party that's been ostracized <laughs> you know standing in the corner until someone notices him but yeah but he does have, you're right though, he does have that element of drama, which you do see in drag shows where, I mean, you, there, there is sometimes a reveal, you know, you like take away, mm. you unsnap the ball gown and you like do a little shimmy, you know, like there's, yeah. <laughs> who doesn't love a reveal on the runway? So that is, that is essentially, yeah, that, you're correct. Yeah. And he strikes he some, yeah, he strikes mm-hmm. some stunning poses too throughout this <laughs> you know like there's this pose where he sort of like got his one foot uh, leg up on a step on a step and then you know he he sort of glances over his shoulder dramatically and then um i don't know i mean maybe it's also the original story that's got me going here because i remember poe's description of the red death you know wafting through the crowd in this elegant yeah. but but eerie manner so oh yeah. my god in Poe's original story, there's this part where the Red Death is pursuing the king through the different rooms, and it describes the light 
changing color as he moves from room to yeah. room and getting closer and closer to the prince. And yeah. it is, oh, yeah. it's so good. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, I the, mean, yeah. for me to read that like 200 years later and still be scared, I was like, I'm in suspense right now. I was reading that and it was still scary and suspenseful. I mean, it's totally turned on its head. In the original story, the Red Death pursues the king, but here he sort of retreats, and then the king pursues him in turn. And in the original story, the king is the first to die, right, Misty? But um, by grabbing onto yeah. the Red Death. But here, everybody else perishes in front of the king's eyes, and then he attacks the Red Death. But the original poem story had that ominous line of, until he was a yard from the, king's, from the prince, prince's face. You know, yeah. that's how the pursuit, you know, culminated in the king dying first. So, oh, that that part scared the yeah. crap out of me when I first read it. <laughs> yeah, and and that's the one way the story differs from the original. In the original, the guests all tear Red Death apart and find nothing, and they mm. all die. Everybody yeah. dies. The prince, the guests, everybody. In this, we we see the or the king dies and. I guess it's not really defined in this story whether he's a king or a prince, is it? Yeah, well, Does, even, it, even in the original Poe story, it wasn't completely um, uh, defined because at one point in time, he calls him a duke in the original Poe story. I don't know if you know that. So, you know, it's... All I know is that his name is Prospero. So that's really all you got to know about <laughs> when you're When your name is Prospero, you're doing okay. You're yeah, doing that's right. right. You're prospering. But um, it also has some kind of a Shakespeare, you know, bent to it. Because, you know, um, wasn't there a character, you know, from Shakespeare? Also some, I don't know if there was a Prospero from... It just sounds like a Shakespearean name. Shakespearean. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe. So yeah, this king, he kind of looks and acts like a dumb rich kid. He he looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger, but also like in modern times, he would be the kind of guy who would buy a Ferrari and crash it to get views on YouTube. Oh yeah, definitely. He's very <laughs> yeah. puerile, very um, childish in his, you know, yeah. demeanor, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're right there. Uh, definitely a Ferrari kind of, writing off a Ferrari kind of guy and Letting his daddy exactly. sort out the problems, yeah. Exactly, yeah. And he's, he's kind of, like, drawn to look like that, too. Mm. Um, we don't learn that much about him, though, except for that he loves to throw a wild party. And he's definitely imaginative. We learn that much because, I mean, it's, oh, it's mentioned that he's the architect of these rooms and of the, you know, not the literal architect of the rooms, I mean, of the decor, at least. He's like an interior yeah. designer who's also a bodybuilder. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He uh, has pursued the liberal arts in his um, privileged life. <laughs> He's had a lot of time to just think about if he could throw a great party, what would his amazing party be? And like making friends with interior designers. <laughs> Brilliant. But um, then, yeah. Oh, sorry, continue. No, 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 I just, um, I mean, your note's obviously way superior to mine. I'm just saying that, you know, um, uh, the fact that, you know, this is this was an actual thing, you know, like uh, back in the day, the, the more lavish, the more creative, the more imagine, imaginative your party was, the more you increased your 
social status among the rich back in the day, you know, 200, 300 years ago, at least among the, the royal courts of Europe. So this is definitely the prince doing that. He wants to show, you know, show off basically yeah. his ability, not just his riches, but also his wild, you know, um, taste and style. Yeah, because like the more impressive wealth, the displays of wealth and extravagance and huge distractions that he can provide, the more people will hopefully forget that all of the peasantry is dying. Like their whole kingdom is dying. <laughs> exactly. And that's the core of Poe's critique and Corbin's critique here when, he, when he's doing the art. It's the fact that you're willing to spend so much gold in whatever currency they used back then on these silly little entertainments while the rest of the country, while the rest of your people are suffering. Um, like that sequence of panels, I know that some of your favorites where he's given the options to either help the people um, you know, or not. And then he chooses the party, you know, so he'd rather oh, spend the money yeah. on the party. And that is definitely what probably happened, what Poe saw happening when he was alive, you know, people uh, living in wealth and with all this wealth and just passing by, you know, on the, these orphans in the streets and not giving them the time of day. So, yeah. Yeah, it is definitely a critique of the, the wealthy uh, owning class. Mm that choose to turn a blind eye to the struggles of poverty and death and famine and disease around them. And even though it is their obligation to do something about it. That's right. That's right. Um, and that's it for my notes. Basically, I've exhausted my notes. <laughs> you, you, you can wrap <laughs> this one up, Misty, because I've, I've run out. So don't feel bad about <laughs> Not oh my gosh, me. I'm sure you have more to say when I talk about the rest of my notes that I have here. I just have a little bit to say about the art. Um, the illustrator reminds me a little bit of R. Crumb. Do you know who R. Crumb is? Of course. Is? Oh, who doesn't? I mean, the most yeah. famous comic underground comic book artist of all time. I love him. I've got a coffee table edition of his here somewhere, but I've had to put it away because, you know, of my daughter <laughs> running around oh, the house. Yeah. Good call. Good call. Oh, yeah. It's the cat chatting up another cat and then getting Aww. all naked. That's not something I want her to see. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. Good call on that. Um so yeah, just kind of like the rounded edges in the way Mm. The naked figures are drawn. I feel like Arkham also liked butts. Oh, <laughs> and big boobs. And he likes boobs, boobs and butts. Yeah. <laughs> so um, that's all. It, that's all I want to say about that. Awesome. Uh, I love to see comic elements being used in a modern way in this story, like the gradient of red to blue with the crash sound effect word we see as the clock in kingdom crumbling crumble is really lovely um and then one note about the red death and i would like to see more blood <laughs> <laughs> more blood Whoa. more blood please. <laughs> this whole this whole story is full of red already it's like it's saturated. not enough it's not the enough for death. your bloodthirsty nature Misty, no. shame on you. <laughs> <laughs> it's The Red Death is called the Red Death because it causes people to leak blood out of their pores. Yeah, that's in, right. In Poe's in story. Mm. 
He describes it as follows. Blood was its <laughs> avatar and its seal. <laughs> the redness and the horror of blood. <laughs> this... There were sharp pains and sudden dizziness and then profuse bleeding at the pores with dissolution. With dissolution. So I guess that means like the blood would come out of your pores and then it would disillusion all over your face. The the scarlet stains upon the body, and especially upon the face of the victim, were the pest ban, which shut him out from the aid and from the sympathy of his fellow men. That's right. And he calls it a a pest ban, which I think is maybe like an old term for when you think somebody's a pest or like somebody has fleas or ticks or something and you... They're banned. <laughs> yeah, they're segregated. You and, banned them. Yeah, you yeah. shun them. Yeah, you're they're right. Shunned. Yeah. So more blood because, like, in the, in the comic, we see people who are afflicted from this. They have, like, bloody spots on them. Mm. Uh, maybe, the, maybe the artist was waiting to cover the whole – to do a full blood head-to-toe blood figure <laughs> with the Mask of the Red Death and save that. For the red death mask of the red death character but i was thinking it would be nice to see maybe one peasant head to toe covered <laughs> you know only you would want more blood in a story filled with blood <laughs> that's brilliant wow uh, yeah more blood um we are yeah my favorite bits of dialogue was came in the beginning when the king when the king's advisors asked him to help out the poor and provide sanitary conditions and he just <laughs> he was just like how about no i'm gonna throw a party yeah so, you know, i actually didn't read the hold on let me read the dialogue it's yeah read funny it for us that's a good one his advisor says you could distribute food to the poor and clean up their sanitary conditions your majesty such a remedy could be very expensive it might deplete the royal treasury and then the king says, or dot, dot, dot. And it's a close-up of his face. <laughs> I could throw a party. <laughs> <laughs> He's got this huge, huge shit-kicker grin on his face. Like, oh, this is the best idea ever. <laughs> He's so proud of himself for thinking of that idea. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, man. And he looked all <laughs> pensive before. It's almost like he's happy that this turn of events has given him the, the excuse to have a party. <laughs> Yes. Oh. Yeah. 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 Like he's been dreaming of this moment his whole life. He's like, I'm not good at being a king. I'm not good at keeping an economy together or helping peasants have sanitary conditions or functioning society. <laughs> but, but now is my time to shine because I do know how to throw a party. <laughs> yeah. He's an impresario first and foremost and you know, <laughs> king, not even second, just the worst king in history, but the best oh, par- party planner. Oh. <laughs> he probably insisted on planning every wedding in the kingdom, peasant weddings included. <laughs> I bet. It's like he was, he never even wanted to be a king. He was just born into being a king but what he's real passionate is event planning yeah. you know <laughs> he just should have been an event planner oh damn yeah no that's a good call you know um i i do have some notes on this as well my favorite bit of dialogue this i can actually contribute to this segment is also that but the part where he gets 
I mean, you'd think he's like a, an Arnold Schwarzenegger type of guy when it comes to, you know, enunciating, but he's not because later on when he sees the Red Death, he gets all, uh, you know, he gets really um, up in arms about that. And then suddenly his dialogue changes from all this dance, drink, and be married to who dares, who dares insult us with this blasphemous mockery. Seize him. And, you know, the fact that he calls it blasphemous that kind of reinforces his God complex or the, or reinforces my, you know, belief that he had a God complex because this is, you know, you know, trouble in Eden. This is basically Satan, you know, sowing some seeds here and he's just having a temper tantrum. Yeah, definitely. It's a narcissist being presented with the truth and having a meltdown, like a complete meltdown. Can we pick some of the sound effects as uh, favorite bits of dialogue? Because I would so do that if, if we were allowed to do that. Oh, definitely. <laughs> like the sound of the clock. Bong, clunk. Yeah, the clock has dialogue. And then, ah, all of that. That's brilliant dialogue. Well done, Richard Corbin. There's sound effects galore in this story. I love it. love it. Crash. The castle collapses. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah, this is like honestly an inspiring amount of sound effects. Like it's almost a, like a challenge. Can you tell the story of Mask of the Red Death using only sound effects? <laughs> yeah, there's a whole page where he reveals his face, which is just basically sound effects. I mean, they 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 mutter the Red Death, but then it's just sound effects on every panel. But you know, yeah. that that I can't wait any longer. What is your favorite panel in this thing? Because I think I've already mentioned mine, but I mean, there's a couple. Uh, well, it's def- my favorite panel has got to be the Red Death when he takes the mask off okay. and we see the skull dripping in blood. Oh, and then it, the, the, the panel itself has this pretty metal looking border along the outside edge, which is all like uh, jagged. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> so it's just extra metal. So, yes, that's my favorite panel there. And you know the um, the skull with all the blood coming out of him. It reminds me of the final scene in the movie Mandy. And you just mentioned the metal aspect. That movie is so metal. <laughs> you still have to see that. You still have to see that. Nicholas Cage poses in yeah. this car. I don't know if you've seen that image online, but he's just bloodied. He's he, and everything's red, and it looks exactly like that, except no skull face on Nicholas Cage. But wow, it's well, you know, he was Ghost Rider, so like. They kind of his face and Ghost Rider face kind of like occupy the same space in, in my brain at least. And in this frame, we see like a red, almost smoke coming off of yeah of the the red skull. death. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a little bit like Ghost Rider. Oh my god, you're right. Plane. You're right. Yeah. It is. And there's your Nick Cage Mandy Ghost Rider connection right there, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so that's definitely a favorite panel. I also really like the the whole page, page um, one fifty two, I suppose, where he the king is talking about his party, and we see as he describes it, panel to panel, his staff or the help setting the party up. And sort of we move forward through time as the party is being set up. He's describing it to guests arriving. And that all happens on one page. And it's a really cool combination of illustration and 
narration combined yeah, that it... moves the yeah moves forward it moves everything forward in time it moves the plot forward um yeah it's pretty good that's that's a good page yeah, it looks like, you know, I call that the Cirque du Soleil page because <laughs> yeah. it looks like, well, at the same time that he's got all these servants preparing everything, the Cirque du Soleil guys are rehearsing or something. <laughs> Obviously, it's already the party happening, but it's just insane. I mean, oh, uh, lots of nakedness. And like you say, the dialogue and the, you know, um, the narration makes the, the flow of the story sort of quite seamless and um, and appealing because yeah it reads it re- reads really well so yeah. good call there yeah yeah um so is that it um those two that that's your favorite page right misty um and that's then your favorite page and then the skull is my favorite panel okay i'm gonna okay my favorite panel is also the skull one and then my favorite page is the the very the, the page where we are introduced to the clock. Um, because, you know, I just love the way Richard Corbin draws faces, you know, and even when masked, you see the fear that the... And this clock is so intricate. It's like some kind of steampunk god who's itself wearing a mask. And now, now listen to this, Misty. This is another, like, visual, um, you know, uh, reference here. The clock looks like the Red Death himself because he's got a round clock face for a mask. Oh. He's even wearing, the clock's even wearing a cloak if you look at the tapestry hanging behind it. Oh, yeah. So there's some visual overlap. And then it's got the skull Mm -hmm. pivot. And then it's got, obviously, you know, the, the clock face. And, um, you know, the intricacy of the gears reflect the intricacy of the the skeletal body, which still has some shreds of flesh on it when we see that later on. Yeah, I like, I thought that was so cool, the way that the gears were drawn all exposed like that. And you can see, like, layers through layers of the clock. And now that you mention that, that does definitely mirror the bones and sinuous... Yeah. Uh, tendons and muscles, the deteriorating muscles yeah. of the, of the red, red death. death. So yeah. I just, uh, because of that, it's not necessarily the best page, but it's my personal favorite because this was intentional. I'm pretty sure on Corbin's part. And then you've got the ominous boom, boom, <laughs> boom, you know, on that page. It's just such a great effect. And then at the very bottom, it seems like they're fleeing from the from the clock. <laughs> you know? Yeah, they're all running away. Yeah. Oh, it's so brilliant. It's, it's just brilliant. It's almost as good as the next page where we see these little worm guys vomiting on the floor. <laughs> That was that panel. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. To understand what was happening in that panel, I was like, "What is this?" Because I don't think these are are these party guests. I don't think these are party guests. I think what that panel is supposed to represent is how the rich feel about the peasants Mm. that are dying and suffering. um, That they are essentially faceless worms uh, crawling on the ground. And they're disgusting. They literally disgust them. Yeah. No, I think uh, that's as good an interpretation as any. Way better than I could come up with. I just, I mean, obviously it's well known that people from way back when treated, uh, you know, uh, malformed people with, you know, uh, entertain. They, they allowed them to be entertainers. And they saw that as, as freakish fun yeah. and it's horrible. But this is what's happening here. Mm-hmm. 
So, um, but you know, your interpretation's better. Because there's like a, and maybe we could do, maybe we could do a episode on the circus. We could do like circus horror or something. Cause like, you know, freak show horror, there's a lot to be said around, around that whole culture. Cause while it was exploitative and, and terrible in that it maybe painted people with, deformities as monsters it also gave them some opportunity not to sound like a disgusting ent- entrepreneur capitalist person but like <laughs> but, they, but hey they got a paycheck you know i don't know i don't know what i'm trying to say maybe we'll I'll have to do some more research on that whole subject but we could do an episode there's on definitely part. i mean there's definitely a lot to say on this i touched upon this subject in a previous episode i think it was the ghostwriter episode where i talked about because in that episode in that ghostwriter comic from a previous long box show there were these the these antagonists who were freaks who were being controlled by this businessman who owned a circus and they were attacking ghostwriter and then i also mentioned the famous film freaks which was from 1932 mm-hmm. misty and that was by todd browning and that really focused on the horror of the malformed and how people were exploiting that for entertainment so we got to work this in there's lots of circus horror and comics this is going to be yeah, an upcoming is. show listener so well done there <laughs> yes if you have a recommendation for like a circus horror comic that perhaps that you have found awesome send it in let us know definitely Maybe we'll- Maybe we'll read it. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> no, definitely. Yeah. We'll check it out for sure, definitely. So anything else on, on that, Misty? Um, that is my That concludes my notes for awesome. The Mask of the Red Death. Now, I have to compliment you on your thoroughness and your attention to detail. Uh, some would call that OCD. I would call that genius, <laughs> but well done. <laughs> Because, <laughs> wow, I mean, your Elvira one was already in depth. Now here we've plunged straight into the abyss. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I can ever climb out of this this <laughs> this mound of detail that you inundated me with. Thank you. Wow. Well done. Oh, no. No, please. So, uh, Misty, ratings for this um, uh, Mask of the Red Death adaptation. I, I'm going to go very high, but I want to hear yours first. What do you give this? And listeners, we're using the Bloody Skull rating system this time around to honor our friend the Red Death. How many Bloody Skulls do you give this, Misty? Is it, it's out of four, right? No, it's out of five. Out of five. <laughs> I give it a Three point seven five out of five. Three point seven five out of five. You know, you surprised yes. me because <laughs> I want to hear your reason for that because I give this a full five out of five. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Seriously, it was I mean, it it's Poe, but they didn't do anything weird to Poe. And it's great art and it's horror out the you know well, it's it's so amped up on the horror department. I don't know. I, I This is a near-perfect adaptation for me, and I don't know. But, yeah, I want to hear your justification. So what 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 faults could it possibly have had? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. 
Um, okay, well, my, I thought it, I, I agree with you on all of those points. And it, you know me, I hate to criticize. <laughs> but uh, um, I just thought like, so this is very pared back as far as it's as pared back as one can get when it comes to the story. Um, it makes sense on the surface. But when I went back and I read Poe's original story, uh-huh. there were some really amazing details that I think could have maybe been emphasized a bit more to enhance the 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 terror. Oh, okay, I get that. Yeah, I understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. my my entire reasoning is really the differences in the details. You know, like ah, hmm. like the clock. the The clock is like a huge deal in the story. Um, but the clock isn't really factored in in a meaningful way in the comic adaptation. It's it's sort of a mechanism of spookiness in the story to imagine all of the revelers being interrupted every 60 minutes with a discordant bonging <laughs> <laughs> of which is so disturbing that all the dancing and music stops until it's done. Mm. And you know, to me, that clock represents like a reality check that something isn't right, that something is off. For a moment, all the guests are forced to sit with their own thoughts. Yeah, they and... couldn't really put that into the story visually. Well, he could have, but he, but I guess you're right, he didn't. Corbin, yeah. I'm saying here. Hmm. He just kind of, but that's okay though, because it's all summed up. You know, he's 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 excited about the clock. He's like. And they'll love my clock, you know. <laughs> so it's kind of alluded to, but there's it in the story. It, it holds a significance that is absent from the comic adaptation. If that if that makes sense. Okay, no, it does make sense when you describe it like that. I was just thinking, what could be your justification? But at least you've redeemed yourself in my eyes. <laughs> I get that. I you know. In my defense, I haven't read the original Poe story in a while. I think I read it a couple of months or yeah ago again, but it wasn't with doing the show in mind, if you know what I mean. It was just because I, you know, I like every now and then picking up the Poe volume and you know perusing it. But maybe if I had read it like yesterday or the day before, I would have seen those stark differences, like you mentioned, because obviously the original story is superior. Um, it's hard to compete. It's it's a high bar. Poe sets a very high bar. So, but honestly, it did a, it did a fantastic job of adapting it without even without the clock and uh, there's all the the colored rooms. We had the colored rooms there. They were yeah. in the story. Um, we have the red death, the skull, the tearing apart. Every everything is there. I think. Um, no, you're right. You're right. It's just, um, no, I, I get different strokes for different folks. I am, um, you know, like the changes. More blood. I yeah. Want more blood. Oh, yeah. That's your main criticism. I knew it. <laughs> well, next time I'll pick the bloodiest story I can come up with. Yeah, we might have to do Garth Ennis's Crossed and see if you would get enough of blood then because <laughs> there's way bloodier stories out there. You're right. The swamp, more than merely a place. It is a churning, seething, bubbling bed of life of which you are a part. Once you were a man, a chemist named Ted Salas, until one little experiment went somewhat awry. 
and you changed. The serum that was to have made you a super soldier combined with the strange forces in the swamp to make you over into this, a shambling, mindless mockery of your former humanity. The macabre Man-Thing. Man-Thing was created in the early 1970s to capitalize on the growing monster craze, but under writer Steve Gerber it became something quite different. Experimental, surreal, and very, very weird. It was something I loved as a kid, but does it still hold up today, four decades after its initial publication? So join me, Paul Matthew Carr, as I attempt to make sense of this cult classic and analyze each issue, putting it in the context of the time it was written and comparing it to the standards of today. And maybe you too can come to love the world's second most famous swamp-based comic book character as much as I do. The Nexus of All Realities, a Man-Thing podcast, a twice-monthly dive into the bizarre. Well, listeners, that's it for part one of our apocalyptic plague episodes. I guess we're going to call this Nightmare Plagues. And uh, we'll be back next week with part two, which will be all about Jenny Finn. I'll leave you with, with a little bit of a preview of bits that I've cobbled together from our uh, recording of Jenny Finn. I hope you like it. There's some really good segments. So come back to us and listen again to The Long Box of Darkness. If you want to send any comments or feedback, please do so at darklongbox at gmail.com. Also, check out our blog, which is at www.longboxofdarkness.com. I'll be posting images uh, concerning the comic that we've discussed, Mask of the Red Death by Edgar Allan Poe and Richard Corbin. And then you can also please follow us on Twitter. We're at Dark Longbox. Um, I'm running that account, and that Misty is at Misty G Comics on Twitter as well. So that's it, and uh, pleasant screams, dear listeners. Or should I say unpleasant dreams, and keep it creepy. Until next time when we once again take a look inside the long box of darkness. I know about, I'd known about Hellboy but not a lot of specifics. Well, the movie is basically what most people think of when they think about Hellboy, and that's a shame because even though Guillermo del Toro did a great job on the two Hellboy movies he did, the third one was utter trash, I think, and um, I'm sure a lot of folks would agree with me. And the comics are so amazingly good. So I would, yeah. Reading this comic makes me want more interested in Hellboy, you know, and that whole world, because I dig this. I dig this style, this whole steampunk style. I think it's cool. I like Victorian stuff. I like steampunk stuff. Everybody's got great leather boots on. Um, There's bonnets. You know. <laughs> this made me so happy that you said that because I can. There's tons of stuff I want you to read. Then Baltimore, they've got you know a steampunk Frankenstein done by Mignola. Oh, there's so many good stuff. And then of course Hellboy and the BPRD series. Okay, we got to get into this, Misty. This is for future episodes. So. Yeah.
like, oh, cool, like uh, hipster stuff. <laughs> into this. Oh, I hate that word. I hate that I use that word. I'm. We're not going to use that word ever again on this show, hip- listeners. Hipster listeners. That's a promise. <laughs> <laughs> It's like a der- almost derogatory term. These honestly. days. <laughs> it's, I swear, it, it kind of is. That's true, yeah. yeah. We'll just edit that out of our collective vocabulary. Shanty intro. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna and you're gonna get even better. You know, every time we discuss something Lovecraftian set near the sea, you're gonna have to whip out that little accordion of yours. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. Interesting element of this world here is there are fish laying everywhere in this town. And they are. All, uh, it, so it takes place in a town where the old. Yep. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. There's fish <laughs> around that say doom. That's right. There, the fish are all whispering doom, doom, doom. Um, when the sailors are ordered to pull up a big hunk of something that looks like they would grind up for cat food, like, onto the hull of the ship, the captain sees it and he's like, maybe we can get some oil or fat out of that disgusting Lovecraftian mass of sea creature. Here, let me help you by turning indi- turning you into a massive writhing goo of tentacles and clams and like... Oh god, oysters. Thank you. 